once upon a time, uh, a practitioner I knew, a fellow practitioner, um, she was getting her business going and she had uh, hired a friend of hers to do the web design for her website. So maybe you can hear already <laughs> maybe where this is going for how this, these things can get complicated. And at the beginning it was going pretty well. She and they had this rhythm where uh, this fellow practitioner, she'd give her friend um, a kind of assignment to get the website going and then she'd do it and they'd check in. And then what started to happen is, and they had deadlines that they were, they were really trying to meet because she needed this website up by a certain um, time. But then what happened is that a deadline would come around and that part of the website was not finished or whatever they were working on was not finished. And then a few days later it would get done. Next deadline, again the same <coughs> thing where there would this be this lag. And as the deadlines kept on coming and these lags got longer, the communication actually started to break down between them too, where, where she would try to call her friend of kind of what's up here, can we talk about this, this isn't working for me. Um, but there wasn't the space to really talk about it. And uh, maybe some of you have experienced these kinds of situations with someone that you're close with, you know, these difficult situations where it's kind of working out but it's not completely working out and it starts to make that friction in your heart, in your mind. You know what I'm talking about? And, it, and, and it's difficult to know how to resolve it in some way. And this practitioner, what I appreciated, she said she was aware of it. She could feel a lot of the emotion around it because it really brought up a lot of emotion of being kind of angry and upset that it wasn't working and unresponsive, you know, dealing with an unresponsive um, friend was really difficult. She felt like also she was being betrayed um, in terms of uh, a contract that they had together. So kind of difficult emotion, anger and sadness and fear. And, um, and then another deadline came and actually nothing happened and she couldn't get a hold of her and quite a bit of time went by and she was at her place of work and her friend walked through the door. And she said all she told herself was, okay, um, she just kept on telling herself, just be present. Just be aware of the stories in your mind. Just be present with her. Be aware of any of the stories that are here. And she said she was so thankful that she could remember it that morning when her friend, friend came in. And as her friend came in, she could see that she was really quite distressed. And what she found out is that over the past several weeks, her mother had been dying. And it was that day that her mother had passed away early in the morning. Um, and she was so thankful because she could actually be there as a result with her heart. Because so much of her emotional world was saying, get her, <laughs> rather than to be there. And that was the moment where the bubble burst where she was actually there with her, her friend. And, and I want to point out so much of this practice is uh, coming to break through these kinds of bubbles that our minds create. And this is really what I was trying to allude to a couple of weeks ago when I was giving this <coughs> teaching on emptiness. You might have remembered where I was talking about or trying to introduce this very common concept that you find in, in Buddhism around emptiness. 
And it's basically just this sense that the world that this mind creates is not as true as I think it to be. That's all emptiness is. It's a, it's a quality of experience. It's, a, it's, it's seeing how my mind creates a world that really isn't that true. And if I can keep that in mind, if I have a feeling sense that that's how this mind works, I can prevent myself from getting hooked. And I can also prevent myself from creating more, more suffering out there. Because maybe if you're like me, you might notice a lot of difficulty that I create for <coughs> myself and for others is around the worlds that get created by this mind. And in the story around this practitioner, it's important to remember that her emotions were real. Those are real emotions that she had to be with, but they weren't necessarily true. And that's what I need to remember. Oh, this is a real emotion that's arising right now, but it might not be true, the story that, that's woven around it. And again, this is so much about of, of what emptiness is about, is that we have some experience that's real, but it might not be as true as we conjure up it to be. And you might have had similar experiences where you have this experience where you notice a story is just a story. Well, that's just a story that I'm telling about that other person. That's just a story that I'm telling about myself and the relief that can come just from seeing that it's a story. And what I point out, it's not about stopping the story. It's about seeing that the story is just a story. Because there's a place also to think and to create story. But the trick is, is can we keep it in the appropriate, appropriate context of our lives? Can we relate to it skillfully? So this is what I'd like uh, to talk about is just again, another facet of emptiness. Emptiness being, really it's this act of seeing that the, the world the mind creates is not as true and solid as we think it is. There's no, uh, kind of the classical de de uh, definition of it is that there's no fixed inherent existence behind anything. So for example, you know, for example, the breath or this, we, we can call this, let's say call this, we can call this a bell, but actually this is in process, this isn't changing. We might not see it change, but over a million years it's going to change. It's really a process that it's involved in. And the act of seeing is even more of a process. So for example, the bell that you're seeing right now, that experience right now, is a different experience of the bell if you were to see it in eight hours or tomorrow morning your whole system would be in a different place. So it would be a different experience. But we call the experience the same experience. Right now I'm seeing the bell. And then when it happens tomorrow morning, I can say right now I'm seeing the bell. But it's actually a different experience. It's always changing because we're situated differently. And so much of meditation is we're trying to get into that mode of feeling into process rather than thingness. It's getting a, a sense that really we live more in a world of verbs than nouns. And what makes this so difficult is that so much of the way I understand the world and I navigate the world is through language. And what does language do to experience? It solidifies it. It creates things where I can <coughs> name this thing, Bell, and I can always name it that one thing, even though the, the experience is changing. And there's a use to that. It makes it allows us to communicate and bring meaning to our lives. 
but it can be problematic just as in the story I told. Because what she did with, to with her friend is she fixed her. She, she had an idea of who she was. There was a fixed story about her friend. That was wrong. Her friend's a fluid process that's going through all kinds of things. Chuang Tzu, who is really a, a teacher known in Taoism, gives this wonderful analogy that I think fits with a little bit of what we're uh, trying to sense into with our experience and with this practice. And he gives this example of an empty boat. He says, if a person is crossing a river and an empty boat collides with their own boat, even though that person might be a bad-tempered person, they will not become very angry. But if they see a person in that other boat, they will shout at them to steer clear. And if the shout is not heard, they will shout again and yet again and begin cursing. And all because there is somebody in that other boat. Yet if the boat were empty, they would not be shouting. They would not get angry. If you can empty your own boat crossing the river of the world, no one will oppose you and no one will seek harm to you. I think it's a great analogy <coughs> of how I notice my mind do this with experience. There is somebody doing that to me. Rather than there are these causes and conditions that are giving rise for this situation to happen. For example, this fellow practitioner. If she would have had the sense of, oh, there are certain causes and conditions now that are giving rise for this dynamic to be happening around my website. Oh, interesting. I need to address that. I need to address the behaviors that are happening, but I don't have to put somebody in the middle of that experience that then I simply blame. Have you noticed your mind do this? You put somebody in the boat. And again, this doesn't mean that I stop using these words, I, me, and mine, or you, and yours. It's not about that. It's about how the mind works. It's about the stories that we have and how I'm getting convinced by them. And can I let go of those stories? So there's a, a Pali word for this kind of thinking that leads us astray. And, and the Pali word is papancha. And it's usually translated as mental proliferation. It's, it's actually uh, ta talked about quite often. And it actually is very much connected with this teaching on emptiness. For example, this, the teacher, this teacher, this great Indian, um, a Buddhist teacher by the name of Nagarjuna, who is well known for kind of beginning to give rise to these teachings of emptiness, in his, his the very beginning of his, his book on emptiness, the little Madhyamaka Karika, he, he uh, shows how this exploration of, of, of emptiness leads to a mind that is free from papancha, free from this kind of mental proliferation, this kind of thinking that gets us in trouble.
So what is papancha? What is this mental proliferation? It's, it's really uh, this kind of thinking that has an obsessive quality to it, that kind of feels like it, it, we spin out in some kind of way, that really doesn't do us any good. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a, a, a description of how it arises and then an example of that, because then I think you'll get more of a sense of what papancha is, what mental proliferation is, and you'll probably be able to relate to it. What the Buddha does is he describes how it arises. So this is going to be very detailed, but it's really kind of the, the heart of, you could say, Buddhist psychology or, or uh, a, a early Buddhist examination of how experience unfolds and really how our un suffering unfolds. So I'm going to share with you uh, a passage from one of these early Buddhist discourses, and then I'm going to explain it. So it's going to be a little tricky, but we're going to go over all the terms to get a feeling sense of how you can get a, get, get a sense of this in your own experience. So the Buddha begins, he says, dependent upon the eye, so this, this, um, this organ, the eye organ, and forms, such as this bell that you can see, and eye consciousness, which is just that with this eye organ, there has to be a kind of consciousness foreseen to happen. When these three arise together, you have something called contact. So contact is simply a moment of experience. It just means for to have the experience of seeing the bell, you need three components to it, at least from this Buddhist perspective. You need an eye to see it. You don't have the eye, you don't, you, it's not going to happen. You need more than an eye, because if you only have an eye and no consciousness, seeing's not going to happen. So you need both of those in terms of how the mind and body work, and you need an object. And when those come together, boom, you have a moment of experience. And this is the, the foundation of, of experience, or these, these three coming together in a moment. And when there is contact, so you have a moment of experience, then what, what, this what gives this, the, what... Uh, is dependent upon this. When these conditions come together, you have a moment of contact, the Buddha says there is feeling. And what he means by feeling is that in this moment, this experience is either gonna be pleasant, so you might see that this bell right here, when you see it, is pleasant, or it might be unpleasant, or it's gonna be neither pleasant nor unpleasant. And that's with anything I hold up, right? There might be things that you find that are more pleasing to the eye than other things or things that are a bit more neutral than other things. But every moment of contact, every moment of experience is, is going to have one of these three flavors. It's either going to be pleasant, unpleasant, or neither of those. Okay, and then we go on further. So once you have a moment of contact, which is going to also have this quality of feeling, it's going to be pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, what the mind does with that is then it perceives experience. So what uh, uh, per perception means in this, in, in kind of Buddhist psychology, is the mind labels it. Like when I hold this up, your mind's probably going to say, oh, that's a bell. That's perception. It's my mind's ability to perceive. And that's what the mind does pretty readily. Like when I hold this up, there's probably some recognition. Right? You can see that the, the, that's just what the mind does. Is it recognizes what these objects are. So there's contact, might be pleasant, unpleasant, maybe neutral, and then, oh, it's a watch. And then what one perceives, one thinks about. 
This is how thinking sometimes arises. I mean, thinking can arise also from other thoughts. We'll get to that later, which also can be a kind of contact. And then what one thinks about, one complicates. And the word for complicates is papancha. And based what a person on what a person complicates, the perceptions and categories of complication assail them, <coughs> oppress them with regard to present, past, and future forms cognizable via the eye. So how does this happen? Walking down the road, a truck passes me by. Oh, there's a moment of contact. There's the eye. There's an object, the truck, and there's eye consciousness. There it is. Boom, contact. And the mind, let's say, finds it pleasant. And then it perceives it, and it says, oh, blue truck. It sees that it has a color, and it's a blue truck. And then what the mind does is that it might begin to think, oh, that blue truck, it reminds me of my friend's, my friend's truck, Joanna's truck. She's got a blue truck. So the mind starts to think about things. Maybe I should call her to go on for a hike. That'd be kind of <laughs> nice. I haven't seen her in such a long time. It'd be so cool, you know, especially spring's coming and a little warmer weather. You know, but if I, if I call Joanna to go for a hike, I'm going to have to call my friend Andy to go for a hike too because all three of us used to always go hiking together. It'd be really kind of great to do that. Um, but, man, the way they talk to one another just <laughs> drives me crazy. <laughs> It is so irritating. <laughs> I can have no end to it. I mean, I I just when I think about Andy and Joanna talking, it just fills me with this kind of irritation because I get so sick of it. I mean, no wonder I haven't called them in such a long time. <laughs> <laughs> there is no way I'm going to call Joanna to go for hiking. That would be, like, so stupid of me. You know, in, in some ways, I don't want to call her so they can start to think that I'm not calling them. And then when they call them to ask me what's going on, what they haven't heard, heard from me for such a long time, I'm going to tell them. <laughs> I'm going to tell them what's been wrong with our relationship and what's wrong with Joanna and, and Andy and how they talk. Because they're really, um, they're messed up. <laughs> <laughs> so here I am. I'm pissed off at Joanna and Andy because I saw a blue truck. <laughs> You ever seen your mind do this? <laughs> so welcome to the world of papancha. <laughs> this is happening so often. There's, there's something that triggers a thought process. And it can actually be another thought. Because a thought is, is, again, a moment of experience. You have a thought, you have, thought con you have the, the mind, which would be the organ, and then you have thought consciousness, and that is also a moment of experience. And that can proliferate into papancha. And really, that's what's happening, is it builds on one another. And then, how do you feel? Do you feel oppressed? <laughs> so this, this is the arising of suffering. And this is really what I want to begin to see. Because through the scene, it, there, there can be a kind of freedom of really getting to know <laughs> that this is what the <coughs> mind does. And again, I'm not trying to get the mind to stop thinking. I'm trying to see the mind. To get your mind to stop thinking all the time, maybe that should be our homework. Try it for a week, and then you can come back and tell me how successful you were. Because if you could do that, you probably wouldn't need to be here if we had that kind of control over these minds and bodies, but we don't. So the next best thing is to relate to it differently. And that's really what we 
want to explore is how do we relate to this papancha in a different way. And remember, when I, when I invite you to become curious about it, it's, it's so important to have a kind of kindness to remember this is what the mind does. Rather than, damn it, I have such a crazy mind. How can I get it stop, to stop doing this? I hate this. So I think Kathy talked about acceptance last week. Maybe that would go well. I don't know if she told me this she spoke about. But. So we have to have this, this real acceptance around this. So how to step out of this, at least, into something different in our lives. How to step out of papancha. Because papancha creates this delusion. It, it's, it's like the mind that can't see emptiness clearly. Because it's creating all of those people in the boat that's complicating the situation. How to practice with this. There's this wonderful acronym that I just reminded myself, probably in the midst of a, a poncha storm. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> this came to me again. And it's the acronym STOP. And I love it. So I want to go over these four steps, and it's so perfect for papancha, especially if you're just, just going about your day. You're going for a walk. You're at home in the kitchen, and you noticed a papancha storm happening. What do you do? One is, is hopefully with repetition, you can remember to stop. And the first one, S, is just that. Can you stop? Oh, okay, stop. And then... And, and sometimes how I stop is to literally stop. So if I'm walking, it's really great to stop. If I'm washing the dishes, to stop. If I'm sweeping, stop. And then after that, the T is to take a few breaths. So I'm feeling a few breaths. And then the O is to observe what's going on. Oh, this is what's going on. Oh, oh, okay, a worry is here. So I want to point out, with the stopping, I'm stopping the thinking, but I'm not trying to suppress what I'm experiencing. I'm actually trying to notice it. And what happens is I'm so lost in the thought process is that I don't even notice what I'm feeling. So the, oh, I just observe that. I take some time to observe. <coughs> oh, rushing, wow, really rushing, interesting. And it's what that feels like. And then the P is to proceed, to proceed now with some more mindfulness, to really see if I can continue with what I'm doing, but to, to, to be present with what's going on. It can be a wonderful thing. Just that can make a difference. Can you remember to stop when you noticed papancha? In the sitting meditation, I, I think I uh, mentioned this at the last retreat, is I'd love to play around with, can I stop the thought process mid-sentence? Have you ever noticed how sed seductive the thoughts are? It's like, I know I'm thinking and I'm supposed to be paying attention to the breath, but it's such a good thought. <laughs> I just want to like get to the end of it, like finish the story or the novel or the drama, you know, whatever it is. Can you stop it right when you notice it, like mid-sentence, even mid-word? Because I find with that kind of cutting, then it, like I get it, this is just a story. I don't have to, I can stop, I can stop it. Just for this moment. And then I, again, I observe what's going on. So I'm not trying to push 
the whole experience away. I'm trying to stop the thought so I can notice. And what's really important when I stop the thought to do it in a way that I'm not fighting the thinking. Because what can start to hop happen is not only stop, but adding something that's not part of the acronym, which is stop it, <laughs> which is different than stop. Because <laughs> when I get to stop it, then I'm just pissed off <laughs> with my mind. Yeah, which hasn't gotten me very far. So I invite you to explore this, this quality of stop in terms of your daily life, the acronym. S, stop. T, take a breath. O, observe. P, proceed now with mindfulness. Or can you stop mid-sentence or even mid-word in your meditation? What does this lead to? Another common Buddhist uh, word, which I think is interesting in this uh, context. Uh, and it's uh, tatata, and it's usually translated as suchness. And it's a moment of experience of just experiencing this moment as it is, without papancha, without the proliferation. So I'm not adding anything to this moment conceptually, and I'm not trying to subtract anything. I'm just trying to sense into this moment. Thich Nhat Hanh puts it well. He, he uh, I think, is directing us to this, this direction of uh, suchness when he says, people usually consider walking on water or in thin air a miracle. But I think the real mi miracle is not to walk either on the water or in thin air, but to walk on the earth. Every day we are engaged in a miracle which we don't even recognize. A blue sky, white clouds, green leaves, the black curious eyes of a child, our own two eyes, all is a miracle. Would you be willing to touch that kind of miracle, that quality of our experience, just as it is right now? with a, a poem by Ryokan, which I think is a, a Zen, he was a Zen monk poet. Gives another description, I think, of really of suchness, of an experience of, uh, that is not filled with papancha. He says, a cold night, sitting alone in my empty room, filled only with incense smoke. <coughs> Outside a bamboo grove of a hundred trees, on the bed, several volumes of poetry. The moon shines through the top of the window and the entire neighborhood is still, except for the cry of insects. Looking at this scene, limitless emotion, but not one word.
and you touch into your experience in a way that is untouched even by one word, that even a word cannot express or touch, and yet touches your heart so deeply that it's filled with limitless emotion. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.